Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing the fanfic Ulysses by Girl Bookworm, the movie Atomic Blonde, and the book City of Stairs by Robert Jackson Bennett. Welcome to episode 29, Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Bye. I'm <laughs> Alex, and I'm blood red lipstick that knocks people out when they get kissed. I'm Freya, and I'm a garrot wire hidden in a fancy watch. I'm Macy, and I am a poisoned dart pen. We are three red-headed fantasy authors. And today we're talking about, as you may have guessed, uh, spies, <laughs> secret agents, uh, all sorts of uh, sneaky people again, because of course we do like our sneaky people on this podcast. Um, but before we do that, uh, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I just today finished Gideon the Ninth by I Tamsin fucking Lua. Hate you. I fucking and hate you. Let's stop the podcast to talk about how much other serpents are making loud noises of jealousy at me, which I am ignoring. Yes, I got my hands on an arc of this book. And to explain what it's about, I'm just going to tell you what I wrote in my Goodreads review, essentially. Which is, imagine someone took an Agatha Christie house party murder mystery and put it in a box with a puzzle quest video game, dusty skeletons, lots of sword fighting, and a horror movie, and then shook it, put it out, and sprinkled lesbians on top. It is delightful. Can you mail that to one or both of us? Can I mail it? The arc. No, I have an e arc. Oh, you have an e arc. Okay, I don't well. get hard copy arcs. That's true. Mm, true. That's true. 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 Oh. Man, so me- I really want that. Moving on from that delightful pile of bones, I also read *The Silence of the Girls* by Pat Barker. So Pat Barker wrote my favorite books of all time, which is the Regeneration trilogy, which is about poetry mm. and psychiatry in World War One. She writes a lot about the effect of war on society and groups of people in society, and this is a retelling of the Trojan War from the point of view of Briseis. And it's basically about what happens to women, and especially what happens to women in those times during war. It's very bleak and doesn't shy away from sort of horrible things that happen to women in war, but it was very good. And I also read Salt Magic, Skin Magic by Lee Welch, which is a historical fantasy uh, MM romance novel, which had some really interesting magical world building in it and was really great. Nice. I am now 18 days into my February NaNoWriMo ridiculousness. You're doing so well. So We're so uh, proud of you. I crossed 30,000 words today. Um, my book is now 113,000 words long, That's which so is many. just, it's just incorrect. Who's the best writer? You are. you are. You <laughs> are. You're the best writer. <laughs> um, Pterodactyl Screech is more or less the accurate summary of what I have been reading these past two weeks, which is not entirely true. I've gotten a fair ways through the third book in the Divine Cities trilogy by Robert Jackson Bennett, um, which is... We're tentpoling the first of those books today, and the second and third ones live up to the excellence of book one. And I also read K.J. Charles' uh, Any Old Diamonds, which was delightful and quick and happy-making and a treat to cleanse the palate. I think we all read that, didn't we? We did. I think we we all read that. We all three of us read Any Old Diamonds. 
Uh, because we are predictable. We are predictable. And I think it came out on the 31st of January, right? Right. Right, right? Yeah. Uh, so we all jumped on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, then I was reading all sorts of things. I read, uh, of course, any old diamonds. Uh, I went on a huge kick for captive prince fan fiction this last huh. uh, couple weeks. Um, I read Astolat's new robot boners fic. She, I did read that. Yeah, she yes. put out what, like I think, three new robot boners fic. Uh, um, we are not worthy of being blessed cup, by robot. Our bones. cup runneth over, honestly. Um, with robot boners. With robot boners. Runs over. And lubrication. Yep, you went there. You sure did <laughs> went there. Um, I read Unmasked by the, by the Marquess by Cat Sebastian, which is a historical romance novel with a kind of stern, grouchy duke and a non-binary mm. uh, love interest, uh, nice. which was great. And uh, I read the Captive Prince short story collection, uh, which was also very good while I was on my my uh, Captive Prince kick. But the thing that I have been oh obsessed with the uh, last oh week God. or so Brace yourself, listeners. <laughs> is this Turkish romantic oh comedy soap opera called Erkenci Kush, uh, which means early bird. <sighs> And I cannot even possibly explain it to you. But they will try. I will try. At I length. will try. Yeah. Uh, it's about this uh, <laughs> adorably dorky girl and the Turkish Jason Momoa who uh, falls wildly in love with her. And it is a masterclass in slow burn. Each episode is like two and a half hours long. And I'm on episode 10 now. Listeners, you have to understand that Alex is currently in my home yes. and has been listening to this uh, show upstairs while I've been writing downstairs and occasionally I will just hear a scream or some muffled thumping and be like, <laughs> are you are you okay up are there, okay? Alex? I get, a text, okay? I get a text 30 seconds later from Macy being like, are you dead? And I'm like, no, it's just that they hugged. They hugged for the first time. <laughs> and then she'll appear in Slack and be like, oh my goodness, she's wearing his shirt. <laughs> it took 18 hours for them to hug, but finally they hugged. Yeah, this anyway. Is, I've been having yourselves. A, I've been having a great time. Anyway. Let's do a fucking episode, though. Shall oh, we? wait. No, we have a couple other things to uh, talk about, right? We do. Uh, just a quick reminder that um, the Hugo nomination period is still open as we post this episode, and we are, mm -hmm. in fact, eligible for Best Pancast, if that's something you happen to be interested in mentioning. Yes, indeed. And our extravaganza is looming imminently imminently looming imminently and we are beyond eager for your questions darling listeners um your topics your your sources of debate please make us argue about things we love a good argument on we this do. podcast and that is staying open until march 1st is our recording date no so actually I think that we moved it. We moved it back because of, of stuff. It's now, or, right? I'm pretty sure nope, it's March. No, nope, you're right. You're right. You're right. I'm, I am right. I'm wrong. It would have been closed today. Is the yeah. original time <clears throat> that we would have. But we, you're right. Yes. So you have two slash three days. So uh, types quickly. We are on Twitter, Tumblr, and the emails. Indeed, yes. And uh, we are recording this episode today on International Fanworks Day. So a shout out to all you fan creators. Thank you so much. Thank you in particular to our fans as well uh, yes. for supporting us this year. And uh, yay, big round of applause for all the all the fan creators out there on this, this uh, auspicious of holidays. Yes, go and hug your favorite fan artist or fanfic writer. And by hug, I mean leave them a comment because that leave is what... comments and kudos. That is yes. what... Yes. <laughs> yes. 
Tell them they're excellent. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to our episode. I feel we don't necessarily need to define terms in this case because I think (laughs) everybody knows more or less what the spies and secret agent genre is about. So I think we will move on to the first tentpole. And this is a long and glorious fanfic called Ulysses by Girl Bookworm. And it is a sort of modern-day James Bond movies fanfic, and it is Bond Q, or double O Q, as the <laughs> fancy pairing name would have it. Uh, it's very lo- it's long, it's crunchy, it's got a lot of really interesting things in it about the nature of spy work, and mm. it's just a fun, rollicking narrative with a lot of great hurt comfort and slow burn and delightful feelings to roll around in. I enjoyed it. Did you enjoy it? I love the whole... Bond Q oeuvre. Like, if this is one of the pairings that I really enjoy. And this is such a great, like, classic example of that fic. It kind of brings you through the plot of, I think, all three of the modern Bond films, right? Yeah. And it just makes me really happy. And it makes me happy that it treats Q with respect and lets him be deadly and dangerous in his own right, which some fics sometimes, like, gloss over. Sometimes, like, you know how Harry Draco fanfics get rewritten to Leather Pants Draco? Mm-hmm. Oh, Q yes. gets rewritten to, like, Soft Twink. Oh, Q. yeah, he gets, like, wibbified. Yes. Yeah. And this fic does not do that. Yeah. No, I think it, it has a lot to say about the kind of person who would be attracted to this kind of work. Yes. And why they would go into it and the sacrifices that you have to make, which is something that you see so often over and over again in spy stories. What yes. are the sacrifices that are required of an individual to do this kind of work and why they do it in the first place. Do we have any spies in our tent poles with parents? No. Well, I mean, Shara in uh, City of Stairs has kind of a parental figure in her aunt. aunt. Yeah, an aunt, who is not really that maternal. No, and the aunt appears very much as an authority figure and a part of the spy narratives that we see is to do with this very ambivalent relationship mm-hmm. with yeah. one's authority yeah. figures as represented by the M's of the world or the C's of the yes. world. That was the comparison I was going to draw, is that Vinya is very much the M in that yes. story, is the handler, is the head of department, the head of agency. Yes. yes. Yeah, and the, the one, the Kare book that I've read has some things to say about the relationship between handler and asset uh, and the way that it is, the ways in which it is and isn't parental and about sort of guiding a right. child and very interesting. And I think one of the reasons that I love doing this fic as like our first, like our major tentpole for this um, episode is that it brings bond into the discussion i think that the bond films for me are really my like central understanding of the spy agent genre comes from watching bond films i have never seen a bond film in my (gasps) life i know neither have i read any bond fan fiction until this this tentpole it has just been something i know it's kind of kind of weird because i do like of course sneaky people i really love uh, con artists, and I have a cool question to talk about re- that a little bit later. later. Wow! Um, See, I grew up watching all. I've, I've seen every single Bond film because I grew up watching them with my dad. Right. That was yeah, one right. of our bonding acti- bonding <laughs> bond bonding. A. <laughs> And I think I watched most of them, the older ones, especially when I was a little too young to be aware of all the ways in which they are, capital P, problematic, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which they are. 
I haven't read any of the Fleming books, which I imagine are even more so. But I have a deep, deep fondness for the tropes and the sort of cultural shorthand for spies that has come out of that particular franchise. And you're right, Macy, I think it's just so formative and it shapes so much of what we think of as the spy narrative and the spy story in media. I know just enough about James Bond to have suggested a title that we did not uh, title this episode. I suggested that we title this episode, uh, No Mr. Bond, I Expect You to Buy. (laughs) I know just enough to make a pun. (laughs) We do, but I first wanted to get to this beginning question here, which we have around like the whole Bond narratives. Why would anyone be a spy i think that's, yes that's the question that most of these narratives are trying to answer over and over again like what do you do it for what where is your loyalty when you've been kind of cut away from having a personal life really that's yeah. one of the things this fic deals with very directly from bond's point of view less so from q's yeah i mean and when when we were at uh dinner a little bit we were starting to sort of pre-chat about this cheating a little bit um and i mentioned that i think that it really ties into sort of the fealty tropes uh that we've talked about before with um how difficult it can be to navigate those relationships of of loyalty especially when your loyalty is to something as big and abstract as for example a country Yeah, and the whole idea of a spy having their loyalty be first and foremost to the best interests of a country is something Mm. that most of these stories do start to interrogate. I think you won't see any stories these days for which it is an entirely straightforward, oh yes, for Kian country chaps kind of (laughs) thing, because there is that relative. And as we talked about in the fealty episode, what happens when the thing to which you owe your allegiance goes bad or is wrong or is corrupt or is something that you don't agree with and there's that overlap between military and spy where the whole point of training someone like this is so that they subsume their identity into the purpose that they have to serve that they are not meant they're meant to have the ability to think for themselves in order to operate as an agent right but they are not meant to be questioning what they are working towards just as a soldier isn't And I think it's kind of interesting to me, and this might be just the stories that I encounter, but I do feel like a lot of these spy narratives have the spy be British or like loyal to a country where there is a monarchy. There's a more obvious symbol. Mm. And like, Mm. it's it's almost like a holdover of empire. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of like imperial control. Right, the spy is the ed- agent of the the center of the empire, the metropole, going out into these other countries that aren't really part of your sphere of control, but trying to exert that control anyway. We see with Bond traveling all around the world to protect the world for England. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think you couldn't tell that particular type of story and you couldn't have that archetype arise from a society that wasn't ex-empire or active empire. Because exactly as you say, nobody questions bonds right narratively speaking to be Mm -hmm. in these locales and to be you know crashing his car through the local market (laughs) and probably making life very difficult for these people because there is this idea that the influence has been extended from whatever it is that he owes his allegiance to but i think that you had this really great point about control of information here freya yes this is one of my favorite favorite themes of spy 
uh, narratives, especially the ones that are possibly a little bit less flashy and less about mm-hmm. crashing your car through a market. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of what Ulysses the Fic is about points to this this theme, which is the danger of holding information. And that is mm-hmm. the key to, to intelligence work. It's in the name. It's the intelligence that you hold, the information you have, the knowledge that you have is what makes you dangerous and what puts you in danger. And so it shows that even Q, because the nature of his work, he's not going out into the field usually, but he knows things that makes him dangerous and that means that if someone gets their hands on him, he is in danger. And that's why a lot of spy stories are about what do you know, is it up to date, who knows that you know it. Yes. And that's why a lot of spy stories have torture scenes, which I absolutely hate. And I, it's not that they're not realistic for this type of work. <laughs> it's just that I personally have a very visceral aversion to torture scenes, mm. especially on screen. I mean, you, you are a medic. It's not. It, honestly, I don't think it's the medic thing. It's and I can do it if it's like because you know the the whole you know oh look someone's hand got chopped off in you know or shot off in a stairwell or whatever I can cope with that. It's the deliberate slow tension of threatening pain. Mm. I think I mean that I think that's what I mean is that it, there is a difference between violence for the sake of self defense and violence for the sake of inflicting bodily harm and which are different. Yeah, and honestly, I used to be okay. Like, I used to be better with them than I was. And then the first season of Spooks, also known as MI5, oh, happened to God. me. And I basically got very minor PTSD from one of oh, the geez. episodes to the point where I now, like, viscerally react to any kind of torture on screen. So oh, I can't wow. go and watch Bond movies on the big screen anymore. Right. I have to wait for right. someone to tell me where the torture is so I can skip past it. Mm. That's entirely fair. It's easier in books. It's easier when it's written because I can control the speed at which I read it and which parts of it I read. Yeah. But yes, much as I love spy stories, they tend to be a bit tortury. They do. And I keep wanting to pull in points from our other tent poles to talk about some of this. <laughs> we'll get there. So we'll get I there. Wonder, I wonder if it makes sense to like go, go through those a little quickly so we can kind of weave them all together. Yeah, absolutely. What do you guys think? Yeah, Just... we can uh, go through the uh, the next two quickly and then come back to everything. So the next tent poll is um, we were sitting down when we were planning out this episode and saying, we want a spy film. What spy film shall we have? And I sat there like bouncing in my seat going, ah, can we please do Atomic Blonde? Please, 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 please. And because... we almost did the movie Spy, which I would highly recommend that you watch anyway. But and... I'm really glad that we... And my vote was Kingsman. There was also <laughs> the spy who dumped me. There was like a bunch of like comedy ones. Yeah. But I'm glad we went with Atomic Blonde though, because this was fantastic. It was. It was really great. So Atomic Blonde is a gorgeous... I would say serious spy film in its mm-hmm. own way. It's phase, but it plays very straight with spy tropes. But this is a comic book story with a Cold War MacGuffin plot in which Charlize Theron, as an actress, was like, I really want to play this role, went out, bought the rights to this story, hired a scriptwriter, hired a director, and was like, I just want to be this character. Let's make it happen. Good on her. Good on her. And she is that character so fucking hard. You can watch her having just a hell of a good time while she's <sighs> uh, doing this, this film. While it's being incredible. beautifully bisexually neon lit. Oh, yes. yes. Like pink and blue lighting the whole time. The whole way through. The whole way through. <laughs> Macy and I watched this this movie together and like I just sat there going like, oh my God, the colors. The colors. Mm, it's the so colors, pretty. Though. 
And so the soundtrack pretty. is amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. That cover of 99 Luftballon. Yeah. I'm going yes. I'm going to buy the entire soundtrack just for that one cover. Yeah. If you haven't seen this movie and it didn't get the attention it really deserved, it did get like a little bit of mainstream show, but not a ton. The internet went a bit crazy about the trailer. I remember the trailer was yes. all over Tumblr and everyone was like, oh my goodness, you know, bisexual, kick-ass, female spy. But then and I then don't think many people drowned. watched it. Yeah, it didn't yeah. really get much notice. So if you have the opportunity to watch this, you can get it on Google Play. Um, there is a lot of violence. The violence is very well choreographed. It's visceral and brutal and exhausting. But there is no torture. Torture. No, yes. there is no torture. Thank goodness. And there is Charlize Theron being seduced by a beautiful French brunette uh, yes. in a bar. And yes, yes. It's the, very bi. I mean, I'll be very happy if Sophia Patella just wants to play amazing femme fatales in spy movies for yes, the rest of forever. Because she, she was, did such she a good job. She was also in Kingsman. In Kingsman. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's so cool. Yeah, and the amazing. The, like, probably the, the feature part of this, this film is this one scene which is like. I want to say like seven or ten minutes long, and it shot it without a it cut. Was a, it was a single shot. It was a amazing. single shot, right? No cuts. It's like a hand cam uh, fight scene on a like three-story stairwell in and out of apartments with like five thugs, and just continuous punching and shooting, and they yes. keep coming, they keep charging, and. And she starts out completely uninjured, and by the end of it, she's bloodied all to hell. I don't know how the makeup people (laughs) did this. I don't know how they did this, because when would they have had the chance to, like, squirt blood on her? (laughs) It's fucking magic. It was the direction of that is incredible. And there is an article that we can link in the uh, show notes with the the fight scene choreographer for this who said that it was a scene that he'd had in his head for literally years, but he could never find an actor who could pull it off because you couldn't use a stunt double. Yeah, you can't. Because it's one shot. It's one shot. There's no faking anything. And you can tell she's taking damage. It's not like those fight scenes where it's like, fight, 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 fight. Oh, I'm fine. I'll leap out the window and dash down the alley. She looks (laughs) beat by the end of it. Oh, yeah. So beat by the end of it. Woof. Just so much respect. And Mm. it's an amazing piece of art. I was going to say, if we're... We should probably take a brief pause from fangirling Charlize Theron, as much as I hate to Must say we? that. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the interplay between agent and spy narratives and the Cold War. Yes, yes, please. Because that is like a huge popular kind of setting for these spy narratives. And I know, Freya, you've read at least one John Curry and you had some thoughts about Man from Uncle as well. Yes. And I must admit, I don't know a lot about the Cold War. I haven't done much in the way of modern history and... I, know, I do know that it's a very common setting for spy narratives just because it's – I can see the appeal. You have this in, this ready-built setting of Berlin with the wall in place and the East versus West and the difficulty of crossing back and forth and agents from either side. You mm-hmm. have the KGB and you've got the Americans <laughs> and you've got the British and you've got the French and everyone's just poured into this city like a spy nest doing their own thing. And – it's an amazingly good setting, I think, because it's become semi-fictionalized. Yeah. Like, you know, you can you can base these things in the reality, but when someone sets a spy novel in Cold War Berlin, everyone right. has, oh, yes, we know what these tropes are, we know what's going on. And Man from Uncle, which is not a serious film, a film <laughs> of it 
at like, all and is not really taking its setting particularly seriously at all but is like this one a fairly macguffin plot with some incredible stylistic shit going on yeah, yes uh it's probably one of my favorite examples of the use of that semi-fictionalized building as a setting but i think that when was the tv show man from uncle recorded Ooh, i don't know was that late 90s Oh, it's old. It's older than that. It's and I, I wouldn't, that. I haven't seen it, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was slightly more real. And you, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, this is also reminding me of, uh, did either of you guys watch the TV show, The Russians? No. Oh, I think I actually saw the first couple episodes of it. I watched like a season and a half and I really enjoyed it. It's about um, a pair of embedded Russian agents in deep cover in America <gasps> to the point at which they yes. have children together. Yes. Um, as a suburban American couple. And I almost feel like a lot of these Cold War-esque uh, stories are reacting to the people during the Cold War writing spy fiction because that was their reality, mm-hmm. right? Like, if, it, if you are during the Cold War, if that's when you're writing, like, these are the concerns that you have that you're trying to exercise. Uh, and so it's almost like a second-generation narrative. Mm. Yes, yes. I mean, and talking about the, the Cold War, like, one of the... the driving um impetuses impeti for for <laughs> the use of spies is that by using spies you're trying to not go to war for whatever reason because war is uh economically expensive mm-hmm. or because it can be expensive in terms of human life or mm-hmm. all sorts of things so with the cold war you have the uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons and you have mutually assured destruction happen happening right. so you don't actually want to bring out your weapon weapons right. so you have to find another way to gain the higher ground against your enemy and in that case you start using more hidden ways like spies things that are right. underhanded and i think that there's a lot of fiction that has spy subplots in longer narratives like freya i'm remembering the subplot in nirvana in fire with the fireworks factory where they were like infiltrating to find information and like blackmail material on the other princes and also Jia Dong as like a secret agent infiltrating like everybody infiltrates everyone else in <laughs> chinese political dramas and those are kind of like embedded spy narratives i think yeah because it's all very internal so right. if you take it taking it down domestically from this whole our nation versus your nation right. and you know state secrets and patriotism then you can look at a spy narrative that's played out on a smaller scale within the political intrigue genre. That actually brings us maybe to the next tentpole, which I think was Alex going to introduce and the yes. point about Imperiums. Yes, I was. Uh, so the third tentpole that we're talking about today is City of Stairs by Robert Jackson Bennett, which is a amazing uh, fantasy novel with a really unique setting that I haven't seen lots of before. It's a post-industrial fantasy would you say it's like yeah, a like second industrial world. revolution era yeah or? yeah in- industrial revolution yeah so it's like a second world fantasy but they have cars and bicycles and technology and guns so in this in this setting there is a continent uh which was formerly ruled over by some gods that had direct interactions with the mortals and there is a they formerly had an empire uh, which ruled over a, a neighboring country, uh, Sepur, and Sepur conquered them back. And now right. Sepur is the one that has the the empire and is kind of um, doing whatever they can to stamp out knowledge of 
the old gods. They killed right. a bunch of the the gods when they took over. Uh, and so over the course of this book, uh, there it's definitely it definitely ties into the stuff about how information is valuable and dangerous and also puts you in danger. But I'm also thinking about what Freya was saying about like internal versus intra superpower spy narratives. Yes. Right? Because this is like an easy analog to draw, though it's not precisely correct, is that this is the continent was Europe with technology powered by gods and miracles. And Saipur is kind of an India roughly analog, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and our main character in this book is an agent of the new Saipuri Imperium, trying kind of to suppress dissidents. Hmm. And I love that there was no clear, here are the good guys, here are the mm. bad guys, divide in this, because from the one hand, the protagonist, the person who's on whose side we are nominally on, is part of an occupying force in a sense mm -hmm. that is attempt attempting to exert control over a huge amount of people by erasing their history and yes. erasing their narrative which is a huge act of violence a huge oh, act yeah. of violence and what the the and the enemy in quotation marks that they are fighting against almost have an analogy of something like the french resistance during occupied france they are attempting to do whatever they can to shake off these people and to undermine them and it also does a really uh, interesting thing showing the kinds of variety of thought and opinion that people have to this occupying force right. because there are people who are 100% against this who want to reclaim their history and culture and then there are people who look at the situation and sort of go shrug this is the situation that we have I might as well do whatever I can to take advantage of it and profit off of this this but it's also super fascinating that this um the death of the gods happened 75 years ago right yep. so the the collapse of the 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 continent as it's called uh happened 75 years ago before anybody's living memory and so a lot of these people are of a generation who never knew that reality and so it's all about like what do you remember and what is your identity when you're not allowed to remember and the really knotty problems that this uh spy almost uh, i would call shara more of a handler than an agent like bond she's a lot closer to q than she is to bond maybe i think so well i think this is one of the problems that we see in the different types of spy narratives is that mm -hmm. we think of secret agents as people like bond but what a lot of intelligence officers are actually doing on the ground is running assets and the assets right. are not themselves people who work for the Secret Service. They are people who are in key positions who have been turned or suborned in some way by the officer. So someone can be an intelligence officer who is handling a number of local assets, and they are in turn being handled by their own superiors. But we don't really see that in Bond films because that's not sexy. <laughs> there isn't enough space, I feel, in a Bond film to really get into the, the details of that. Is that present at all in... It's kind of present in Atomic Blonde, right? She cultivates that um, German soft documents boy. Yep. Well, yeah, well, and, but essentially that's what Percival was meant to be doing. He was very yes, much acting as wasn't. a controller on the ground. He was, he was cultivating things. He managed to turn a Stasi officer. He had a lot of local sources. He was just incredibly corrupt. <laughs> ah, James uh, McAvoy having a great time in that film. So much fun. Everyone was having Everyone such a good time. Everyone in that film was having fun. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah, But in City of Stairs, there was a quote that I wanted to mm -hmm. 
point out. And this is again to do with the idea of who becomes a spy and why do you become a spy and what do you do? Who is your loyalty mm -hmm. to? And it was, you will serve Sapor in the shadows and Sapor will ask you to betray its virtues in order to keep it safe. And that's something that we see a lot, which is this idea of spies as the necessary immorality to maintain right. a virtuous state. This is the people who do the dirty work. And like, how can you ever argue that a state is virtuous when it depends on these acts? Yeah, it's definitely all about, is it for the greater good? And at which point, who decides what the greater good is? And at which mm -hmm. point do you draw a line and say, this action cannot be justified? Does a spy narrative require an authority or an authoritarian state that can declare what is the greater good? I think so, yes. I would say yes, because I, th I know we're going to talk about Kingsman a little bit later mm -hmm. on. But Kingsman, I feel, tries to cheat this yes, a little it bit. it really does. By saying, oh, we are not actually connected to any government. We are a body that just works for peace and stability, blah, blah, blah. But there is still an authority. And Kingsman is still about what happens when that authority goes wrong. Yeah. Yes. It's about, like, who has the right to make these decisions for everybody else. Right. Mm. And I think that the spy films particularly sometimes sidestep that question a little bit. Mm -hmm. You just get your orders. I found it interesting in Atomic Blonde that... And we're going to talk about this a bit more, I think, with sort mm -hmm. of the idea of shifting loyalties and things. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking through the whole way through, I was trying to work out, not I think this is what the film was trying to do, not necessarily who she was working for, but what I was meant to be feeling about her and her loyalties and all the people she was working for. Because usually a movie is trying to, and a story of any kind, is trying to steer you in a certain direction. Right. And that one just gave you this big messy pile and dumped it in front of you and was <laughs> like, look, here's some neon. Everybody's a shit. Oh, well. Yep. Which was great. It was refreshing, but it was also confusing because the part of me that was used to narrative patterns was trying to figure out what I was meant to be following and who I was meant to be feeling things did, about. Did you place her as Satchel before the reveal? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a pretty that was a pretty well-telegraphed twi oh, twist, I think. I have something that I pointed out to Macy. Oh, this. Freya, has you, have you ever studied Russian? I tried to once. I got not very far at all. <laughs> okay, so I took I took a year of Russian when I was in college. And I have a fun bit of trivia for you. The In Russian, the word for satchel is like one letter away from the word for bitch. That's delightful. And yes. I bet they did that on purpose. I bet they I did. I bet that they did. <laughs> anyway, jumping back to City of Stairs, yes. I want to say one of my favorite things about it was the fact that instead of spy gadgets, we had secret spy spells, which yes. was delightful. Yes. And it was great. The whole point was that there were these spells that they weren't supposed to be able to do because it was part of this forbidden knowledge, dead gods. But it was very much about, well, the normal people can't do it. And nobody's meant to know that we have this knowledge. And if anybody else did it, we would shoot them. But we can yep. do it because we're spies. Yep. And I love, there was a bit in the house party where Shara, the, the main character Shara is like, well, technically... Any spot that an ambassador is standing on is Saipori soil, so it's fine. <laughs> and because I'm like a cultural ambassador as my cover, like anywhere that I'm standing, like on the top of my shoes, it's fine to do this. Yes. And you could you could see Shara's complete impatience for the fact that her own people had given this edict. Every time someone was like, oh, the gods, I mean, I mean, if the gods hypothetically had existed, they're like looking at it like she's about to slap them for heresy. And she's like, it's fine, continue. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> she has to gods or god adjacent creatures which may or <laughs> yep. may not be yep. Yep. god related <laughs> no, gods known to the state of california to cause cancer the entities um, formerly known as gods <laughs> anyway <laughs> And that was that was so much fun, and I can't believe I haven't read more things with this intersection of spies and magic, and I'm definitely going to write one. So good. Yes! So good. Yes! Yes! This episode may or may not, darling listeners, be mine and Alex's thinly veiled, thinly veiled attempt to, to leverage more spies out of Freya. Oh my god. Okay, we have now... Look, been... we, listen, shut up, everybody. So we have now <laughs> brought up Freya's thing that Freya wrote. The, my Actually... My favorite piece of literature, period, hands down. <laughs> I just wanted to, like, acknowledge that. It's nowhere. It's not published, dear listeners, so you can't read it, but I get to read it, and I do read it about <laughs> once a month, and I love it even more every time. Well, I'm going to try my very, very best to turn it into either a novella or a novel, depending on how out of control my word count gets, and mm. this episode especially watching atomic blonde but reading everything was very helpful in terms of solidifying for me what kind of spy narrative i want to write yes. so there you go going to talk a little bit about the taxonomy that you mentioned yes i've created a taxonomy <gasps> we love taxonomy tell us about your taxonomy this is very exciting and we've touched on this a little bit but my taxonomy that i came up with this is spy narratives that are based in glamour and spy narratives that are based in realism and this mm. is what i was saying to do with the whole idea of real intelligence work being more about sitting down in a cafe once a month with someone whose job it is to, you know, man a border post and they've written down some number plates for you and you yep. just and <laughs> you just sit there and you get the information from them and then you go back home and pretend to be someone that you're not. Rather than, you know, long fights in stairwells and wonderful gadgets and th- and fancy <gasps> parties. And it's more to do with lying and securing assets and lying some more and, you know, ninety percent boredom, ten percent pants wedding terror isn't that what, what shara's like 50 percent patience and 50 percent writing lists was yes. shara's <laughs> exactly and i think obviously lakare <laughs> who worked as an intelligence officer writes that kind of spy novel mm. somewhere in the middle ground you've got the tv series spooks i think mm. which does doesn't shy away from showing it as kind of an ugly job like there's a lot about just subsuming your identity into right. the job, about the horrible things you have to do, about danger. It's not something that you would watch it and be like, "Wow, I want to be these people," because <laughs> no, their lives are terrible. It really isn't. No, you just you just want to watch worst. them. <laughs> but whereas Bond is the quintessential glamour agent, where people watch him and it's kind of aspirational, like, "Oh, I'd you love know, to beat people up and wear fancy suits and drink martinis all day." Yes, yes. This- this uh, taxonomy, when I was looking at it earlier, reminded me of this cheesy cartoon for children that I adored when I was a small Macy, which was called Totally Spies. <laughs> and it was these three American girls and they all they had was like cool gadgets and like it was almost like um a sailor moon like magical girl show except instead of magic it was spy gadgets and cool skin tight cat suits it is fascinating how much the spy narrative is marketed to children considering how adult so many of the things associated with it are but i remember you know you have these books that are like oh the secret world of spies and it's just showing you you the fun gadgets and where they hid their secret writings and write something in lemon juice who didn't learn how to do those like code wheels in primary school Mm -hmm. yeah it's very it's like pirates you're like (laughs) why are we selling this lifestyle to children (laughs) 
fun. You know, the archetype's there. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I was just going to mention, um, like, one of Alex's fun facts, trivia corners, uh, a, a cool thing to note about the glamour type of spy. Um, we get so much of it from James Bond, right? Because James right. Bond is like the original glamour spy. And the reason for that was because Ian Fleming was writing the original, the first couple uh, Bond novels, I believe, during World War II. And um, in the middle of British rationing. Ah, yes. And one of the the most marked things about the early Bond novels was the presence of loads and loads of luxury <laughs> food because it was very much like playing to the audience, this this right. British audience that were, was living through not having like lobster and gallons yeah. of melted butter and, and so forth in the middle of Fucking of tins of caviar as like pivotal plot points in spy movies. Yes, like, yes. I swear, I swear. yes. That's so cool, though. But, like, talking about Bond and how Bond has changed over the years, we were going to talk earlier in the fanfic about queering Bond, yes, weren't please. we? Yes, Yes. <laughs> ex- no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to buy. <laughs> okay, okay, Alex, do you, yes. you have not seen any Bond films. No Bond so films So you do whatsoever. not know the context of that quote. No, I do not. It was and- real gay. It was, it was a real gay. <laughs> so the context of that... I was just making a pun. So the context was... of that quote is to do with a, th- a highly figurative but also highly practical assault on masculinity because the scene is one in which he is tied down and being threatened by a slowly moving laser, uh-huh. which is moving towards... Hold on, wait, 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 wait. Which he has Freya, his can, wait, wait, wait. Freya, can moving. you please... Freya, can you please say the word laser again? Laser. Laser. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay, look, the please word laser does not have an er sound on it in my it accent. Yeah. But I was kind of doing a spy who shagged me reference. Yes, it was lovely. I, I loved it. And you know where else this exact trope and scene shows up, which listeners, you now must pause the podcast and go load this on YouTube and watch it and come back. What am I going to say, friends? Uh, the Genghis Khan music video. Oh, yes. shit, yes! Oh, fuck, why didn't we tenfold that? God damn it! <laughs> You're not God damn it! three minute long music video, Alex. We could no have, how though. fucking gay it is, but it's I delightful. Can, I can talk about the Genghis Khan, uh, what is the name of that? Or, no, it's, uh, who's the name of the artist? It's, um... Mike Snow. Yes. Mike Snow. Mike Snow, yes. My God, I love that music video! And it so it's an adorable twist on the spy narrative that halfway through the music video the evil supervillain is like you know what i could solve all of my problems by just making out with the secret agent and marrying him and have children with him instead <gasps> of what i'm doing right now let's just do that with dance moves oh god it's i so love that good. it's delightful so but- this but this whole idea of the of bond as this aspirational red-blooded hetero male you know, who is threatened by the, you know, sexually ambiguous traps set up for him by the villains. If you come into the more modern films, Skyfall was the first yes. one to actually hint at the fact that Bond himself... That was not a hint. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> strongly hint, not necessarily that he is bisexual, that he has performed at least a few bisexual acts in the service of his country, <laughs> question mark. Uh, and so the good thing about Ulysses as a fic and all of the other things with Bond and Q is that you are taking this stalwart of old-fashioned masculinity and making it super gay, which is lovely. Super gay. And I loved that one of the things that Ulysses does is 
it does position the honeypot missions as sex work. And yes. it's very upfront about that. You know, this is something that Bond does as part of his job. And how does that affect uh, his views of intimacy in his personal life, which I thought was super cool. But I think that part of the reason for titling the episode the way that we did was our amusement with Charlize Theron's um, Lorraine, who is also super bi. And yes. my personal theory that they screen for bisexuality, or at least the ability to perform bisexuality when recruiting secret agents. <laughs> well, she was definitely bi in that the sex she had with Delphine was absolutely recreational. Oh, yes, it was. It was not necessary for her job at all. You yep. know who is you know who is another famous bisexual spy who we have mentioned before, John Reese from Person of Interest. Yes, I have that note at the bottom. There oh, are did two you? spies in the Husbands and Wives show, also known as Person of Interest. Indeed, yes. Um, each of the pairings has a rehomed spy, um likely used dipshit. <laughs> like I was about to say that. <laughs> a lightly used dipshit. They rescued and rehomed a pair of spies. Ah, delightful. <laughs> like, like used. Well, this kind of brings us into talking about the idea of Bond girls. Yes. As an archetype, because... I love them. Ulysses does not really put Q into the Bond girl position, because I feel that he's the love interest for Bond, but being a Bond girl, capital B, capital G, mm. comes with its own set of assumptions about your role in the narrative, and Delphine absolutely is. Oh, yes. and But the only reason we don't necessarily mind that she plays this role of someone who's a bit naive and, you know, oh, yes, let's let's have sex a few times and please tell me more about being a spy. And then, spoilers, you get killed, which happens yep. to a lot of Bond girls. Yes. But it's fresh because it's the first time it's been allowed to happen with a woman in the Bond yes. role. And you were mentioning, Macy, that you liked that Atomic Blonde has all these background women and, you know, presumed queer women couples in the background at this bar. Yes. If it was in a Bond film and he was meeting someone in a bar mm -hmm. with the background being performative lesbianism right. and scantily totally clad beautiful different. women, the tone would be totally different. It would oh, be exactly yeah. the same scene, but by putting a woman in the role of the protagonist, it becomes something completely different. But you know what I would accept in that scene is if you gender flipped Delphine as well. If it was a Bond boy, a Bond twink, shall we say. I'm um, here for it. If I would accept it with a Bond twink and yes, the <laughs> Russian agent as a butch Russian woman. Yes, yeah. because the gays would not be presumed heterosexual. Exactly. Whereas if you have, you know, scantily clad women draped over each other in the background of an old-fashioned or even a modern Bond film, the gays right. is still presumed heterosexual, mm -hmm. which I makes it skeevy. help but love the homophone of gays. <laughs> oh yeah, gays and gays, yes. Yes. The female gays and female gays. Female gays. The female gays. <laughs> I like the female gays. We know. We know. <laughs> but I have I have some thoughts about this because Bond girls are notoriously shallowly sketched. Mm -hmm. And I think Delphine is, is fairly shallowly sketched, but I also find in a lot of spy and secret agent films and some books a lot of the characters are fairly sketchy, right? There's a lot of archetypes. Yeah, because I think it, it's not often very character-driven stuff. It tends to be more like plot stuff. Like we are we are putting kind of paper dolls into these situations and having them shoot and punch each other, rather than having the rather than having the plot come from like their internal kind of conflict and motivation. Yeah. Well, 
I think that this is why I am so impressed by um, Robert Jackson Bennett. Mm. Because though every single person in City of Stairs is a person. And they're yes. interesting and they're unique and different and they have wants and needs and desires. And it's not a doorstopper of a book, but there are so many people in it and so much happens and so much world building that I'm like, what the fuck kind of TARDIS book is this? It's very like, tardis I was really surprised because it's like, very how? clean reading prose. And yes. I got through it a lot faster than I thought I would for both the type of story it is and right. the density of character, world building and event. But it moved really but- quickly. And it's no way is it over 120k, right? No, no, absolutely not. I was very impressed. It made me feel a bit ashamed of my incredible <laughs> verbosity. <laughs> Something to aspire to. It's it's a style and I'm very impressed with it. And I hear very good things about his other stuff as well. And I, I definitely recommend that you two uh, would enjoy the next couple of books as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm definitely going to check mm. it out. I've been having a lot of trouble um, focusing on books lately. But mm-hmm. when I was reading City of Stairs, I found myself like really just sort of sinking into it uh, in a way that I haven't gotten to do with books in a while. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, highly recommend. Alex, have you read Ambelo? No, not yet. I think you would really like that. Macy, I think we agree you should maybe steer clear of it um, (laughs) because of some dead queers. But it's a very, very queer book. So Amberlo is another fantasy or at least secondary world Mm -hmm. post-industrial novel. And the pitch for it is very much cabaret meets le carré. Uh, So there's no magic, but it's set in an invented fantasy city that is clearly based on Berlin. Mm. And it is about smugglers and spies and grubby dealings, but a lot of it is based around this cabaret show and the people who work there. So it's got heaps to do with personal loyalties and corruption and the reasons that people do spy work and the grubby horribleness of spy Mm. work. And it's very character-based. Everything I hear about it makes it sound fantastic and like something that I would love to read when the world is less of a shit show and I can let the books make me sad for a bit. Yeah, the first Mm. book hit me pretty hard. The second one I found a lot easier going just because Mm -hmm. of what happens in it is a little bit easier to get through and I'm dying for the third one, which is coming (laughs) out this year. It is one of the few books that I have pre-ordered for this year and I'm hunched over my iPad waiting for it to appear. I'm really looking forward to it. It's by Lara Elena Donnelly, the series... Really fantastic. Quite heavy going, but I really recommend it if you like spy stories. Speaking of spy stories and why we love them, do we want to talk a little bit about some of our favorite tropes? Yes, I think so. Um, One of the things that I, like, I recognize the tropes in Atomic Blonde, like, within the first minute of the the film. Um, Because the opening scene is one of uh, a secret agent getting murdered by uh, one of the (laughs) Russians, Russians on the other side. And immediately they go straight into this, you'll never get away with it kind of kind of scene. (laughs) And we've seen all of those a million times. And they played it so straight and so classically that I immediately knew both what sort of movie that I was in, what I could expect from the rest of the film and how they were going to play the rest of the tropes. Because they played that one dead dead straight and it it held up like atomic blonde and i think this is very similar to kingsman um atomic blonde and kingsman both are kind of love songs to the whole genre of spy films but they come at it from two very very different Mm -hmm. directions and two very different tones yeah Yeah. and the movie spy 
comes at it from a, a place <laughs> of both love and intense satire. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's just... a genre that is that has so much just gleeful self-indulgence in it. <laughs> and I have I cannot find fault with that. Like that's wonderful. I I love that a whole lot. Macy, what are, do you have a, a favorite trope to uh talk about with with spy stuff or Well, kind of. I just love ridiculous over the top spy fight scenes and chase scenes mm -hmm. like those bring me so much joy i got to write one in my book like a couple of days ago and i got to stab my character and give people concussions and there's like chasing and someone drops some logs and they have to jump over the logs and it's so much fun like i watched uh when i was reading the uh, ulysses i went and watched the first five minutes of Spectre, the latest Bond film, and it's this ridiculous rooftop chase scene. And I watch it, I'm like, oh! I mean, you know exactly what's going to happen, right? Which is that Bond will get a little bit of information or maybe kill the bad guy a little bit, but will nearly die, but won't die. And there will be lots of property damage. Opening right. credits. Opening credits. <laughs> and and in the third book of the City of the Divine Cities trilogy, uh, City of Miracles, there's an extended like chase slash fight scene on a giant like Himalaya spanning cable car route. Ooh, that sounds it's like great. the Orient Express, but like cable car bubbles. And there's like a explosive firing device that the people in the car behind you they're chasing you from like the cable car behind going at the exact same speed as you are <laughs> oh dear and hollywood no please, please make a movie of this it's the best thing and oh my god i was like dying reading this and it just gives me so much joy it's so fun see i love gadgets I yes, was always a sucker for the old Bond films with the old Q, and then when John Cleese took over as Q, and and then obviously Ben Wyshaw, librarian twink Q, but <laughs> everything to do with the utter ridiculousness of the gadgets that you get equipped with, even down to the complete shark jumping of the invisible Aston Martin. I was I yeah. was on board. I was on board. Which Bond film was it of the recent ones with the Komodo dragon? And the, like, palm print gun that he lost to a Komodo dragon. I can't remember. If that was Spectre, I haven't actually seen Spectre yet. I think it was Skyfall, maybe. Or maybe it was the one before that. It might have, if it was Quantum of Solace, I blocked that from my brain. It was a very bad film. Because it was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. But Skyfall was so good. <laughs> you have to watch um, every second Bond with Daniel Craig, I think, because Casino yeah. Royale was fine. Gordon yep, of Solace yep. was a hot mess. It was Sky Casino Royale that had amazing. the Komodo dragon. I'm sure. Oh, it was okay. Casino I haven't Royale. seen it for a little while. But yeah. yes, I love the ridiculous gadgets. One of my favorite uh, things in in spy films is the first half of this trope because the second <laughs> half is problematic and misogynistic, and I don't like it. But is the first half is what? Is it the seduction? It's kind of the seduction. Yeah, it's when like the the like swaggery male spy gets uh like trips over his own boner. <laughs> <laughs> and like gets in trouble because like he let his guard drop for like two seconds because he underestimated the hot femme fatale and then she like kissed him with her blood red lipstick and he passes out like i really love that the only problem with that trope is that the second half of it is usually that she gets in trouble later and he either kills her or has to save her from something and that's bullshit right yeah, I, I really appreciated in Atomic Blonde, like rewatching it, that um, Delphine, our Bond girl, 
like really doesn't manage to pull one over on Lorraine. Lorraine just kind of yeah. looks at her, like pulls her into a corridor, makes out with her, gropes her a little bit and is like, okay, so could you stop following me and why are you so bad at this spy thing? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Lorraine doesn't have a boner to trip over. No, exactly. <laughs> have you seen Man from Uncle, Alex? No, I have not. Okay, Elizabeth I like Becky it? does an incredible rendition of that trope. You will love nice. it. Nice. Nice. She's essentially And it's an OT three movie. It's an OT three well, movie. I have I have heard of that. It's yes. great. I've seen some clips of it, but I haven't seen it itself. Yeah. And one trope that we see a lot that I'm not sure if I like or not is like the mm-hmm. double, triple, quadruple oh, cross right. of oh, like yes. oh, but this person's actually working for the other side. Oh no, they were undercover like... the whole time. Oh no, keep you guessing, keep you guessing. And like I like it, but at the same time it's so overdone. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. Occasionally it's a you can lot. just be like, It's hard oh, to keep really? track of, too. I don't actually it's care like, at this point. When it gets to the point of, like, you know that one scene in every Scooby-Doo episode where they're running backwards and forwards between various doors and they're yes. all, like, coming yes. out of other doors with, like, wearing each other's clothes and just like, yes. are we doing this? Is this what we're doing? And look, Atomic Blonde does it, but bless it, it does it with panache. It, it does, does do it with panache. <laughs> the, my, the, the thing that I experience with that trope is that by the time that we reveal the third or fourth double cross, I have stopped caring because yeah. like you you have this this um, sort of emotional connection to the character and you're invested in the things that they're invested in. Right. And then the, you get tricked and you find out that they're not actually invested in those things and you what? feel kind of let down and then it happens again and then it happens again. And by the, you get, the time you get to the end, it's like, I care about nothing. But you know, um, a really great spy TV show that doesn't do the double crossing, I think even ever, like, pretty much never, is Killing Eve. See, I was going to ask if we could leave Killing Eve and do an Assassin's episode. Like a I separate one. I think that you're right. I think that it's assassins. more of an Assassin's episode. But I would say that there's a little bit of, like, Eve's side of things. The Absolutely. The stuff, the stuff that um, Eve's team is doing is very spy It's like a double genre TV it show. Is. You're right. Oh, it's it's so super good. cool. I just wanted to mention that it exists. Because no one double crosses, but it's still tense and amazing and engaging you don't have to have that double cross right yeah Yeah. absolutely and but i think and that's because it's so character based and because we are invested in both of the characters and we haven't had our emotions decoupled out of self-defense by all of the scooby-doo door running (laughs) and if we are mentioning spy cannons that we also Mm -hmm. want to inflict on our listeners i am going to mention codename verity oh have you either of you read this no all right, it is another book for you to leave until the world is less shit because it is one of the most emotionally wrenching <laughs> oh, no. pieces of literature I have ever read. It's a YA oh, no. book about a pair of young women in World War II, one of whom is a spy. And it is an incredibly masterful book. The things it does with unreliable narration are incredible. Mm. And it is wrenching. It is definitely in the realist side of things rather than the glamour side of things. But at the heart of it is a character story and a character study of these two young women and their friendship. And it's amazing, but you have to have stored up quite a lot of emotional resilience before you dive into it because it will rip your heart out. Yeah. Uh, So we're getting towards the end of the episode, but I just have like one quick sort of discussion question for us to end on. Is there a difference between con artists and spies other than like personal motivation or context i think that the skill sets are identical but for Mm -hmm. me the motivation and like the goals are so intrinsic to the story like the framing of the whole thing is that it makes them totally different and i think scope is i think scope is also a a factor 
Mm, I think partly it's also it is what is the ultimate, not necessarily the ultimate goal, but what is the defining action. So in a con artist, you are doing some information gathering, but you're using that mm-hmm. in order to manipulate. Whereas for a spy, in the classic sense of a word, the information gathering is in itself the mm. point. Mm. You are not necessarily right. going to do anything with that information. You might deliver it to some analysts. You might deliver it to your superiors. But the important thing is who has what information when. And you do a bit of manipulation of who knows what. But you yourself are never actually trying to get something out of another person for your own gain. And I think that you have just made me realize that this is why the Imperium is necessary, because someone else has to be there to act on the information you're gathering, some bigger power, right? Like, it can be um, corporation as empire in, like, more modern or cyberpunk settings. I could see a spy narrative using that, but the spy cannot be the ultimate actor. The spy has to be a tool in someone else's hand for me yeah. for it to really yeah. feel like a spy story yeah. you're passing information up the food chain yeah and there's there are some modern day corporate espionage stories that do that and i can't remember right. the name of the film that i'm thinking of but it has clive owen and julia roberts in it duplicity which uh-huh. is about a pair of corporate spies like professional corporate spies mm-hmm. and when they end up on different sides and then the same side of an information stealing war between two major, I think they are either tech or pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. And it is a classic spy movie. It has double crossing. It has like <laughs> sexy encounters. It has, ooh, who's doing what? But it is it has nothing to do with Imperium. It has nothing to do with patriotism. It's this is your job. You're getting paid for it. Ooh, but, you know, do they have their own loyalties? Hello everybody, thanks for joining us on this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. We had fantastic fun recording this episode and devouring the temp poles for it, and do consider this an open invitation to bombard us with wrecks for your personal favourite stories about spies, secret agents, and other sneaky people. Bonus points if they're a little bit magic as well. Now, if you haven't had enough of our voices yet, I wanted to let you know that all three of us serpents have recently been guests on the Hybrid Author podcast, hosted by RJ Theodore. Macy talked about her amazing revision process known as murderboarding, Alex spilled all of their tips and knowledge in regards to writing romance arcs, and I, please try to contain your surprise, talked about why, when, and how to write sex scenes. We'll link to that podcast's website in the show notes if you'd like to check that out. For our next episode, two weeks hence on March 13th, it's the episode 30 extravaganza, in which we will debate, gush, wreck, discuss, taxonomize, or otherwise verbally dance for the amusement of you, our dear listeners. So you should tell us what you'd like to hear. We're recording on March 1st, so you can still have a couple of days to send in your questions or suggestions. You can contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, and we're at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. In addition to this, you're of course welcome to come and hang out in the fan Discord chat, which is linked on the About the Show page of the podcast website. And if you do enjoy the podcast, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. We would really appreciate it. And by the way, we'd consider betraying our country for you, but don't tell anyone. Shh, it's classified. <laughs>